0: You are now listening to Antioch Salt Lake City Sunday Service Podcast with Creative Director Sarah Gilmore. On staff here at Antioch as the Creative Director, um, which is really just a catch-all phrase for anything that is words or media or anything that we can put in some sort of an artistic box is usually something that I'm supposed to do. I like to just call myself the house storyteller, and um, I love that I get to continue our series tonight called There's More to This Story. I love this story. I love this time of year. I love pausing for the month of December to remember when God showed up to make good on every promise he had ever made to his people. It it's, feels deeply personal to me and I, I love um, getting to stop and remember what God's done for us during this time of year and if you were with us last week, Cody started this the series just kind of walking us through the Old Testament, walking us through all the places that the coming of Jesus was promised all throughout Scripture. And the way God had been promising people a savior for a long time, and that Jesus wasn't really an afterthought. He was always plan A for how God would come and rescue his people. And and Cody talked about how the the For over half of the story of Scripture, over half of our Bibles through the entire Old Testament, the people of the Old Testament knew what it was like to wait and to long and to ache for God to come and do what he said he would do. And then as, as if all of that waiting was not enough, from the last time that God speaks to promise the coming Savior to the time that we pick up in the New Testament, 400 years passes. 400 years of of silence, that the, the people of God had been so used to God speaking through the prophets that then for 400 years, for so many generations, there was nothing. All of those things that God had spoken in the Old Testament, they were sort of, they were from the days of old, they were things passed down from generation to generation. For those 400 years, it was almost like the people of God to, could look to the heavens and hear a pin drop. And now I get to tell you what happens next. Thank you for giving me this week, Cody. <laughs> We're going to look mostly at Luke chapter 1 tonight, but before we do, I just want to really quickly um, talk, take us into the significance of Luke's gospel account. Cody touched a little bit on this last week, but Luke was a historian. He tells the story in such intricate detail because he wants his audience to catch the full picture of of Scripture, the full picture of everything that has been promised and everything that is being fulfilled. He even says in his preface to his gospel that it, it seemed fitting to me to write this orderly account of all that's been fulfilled among us, so that we may have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught, certainty in the history and the doctrine of our faith, certainty that God is trustworthy, that he's been writing this story all along. Trust He's trustworthy, and, and it, we can be certain of, of everything that he's done and everything that he's doing and everything that he will do. That was Luke's motivation behind writing the story in the way that he did. So with this historical significance of the story in mind, he begins not with the birth of Jesus, but with the birth of John the Baptist. Let's find out why we're going to jump into this story, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they both were righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. So right off the bat, Luke includes these intricate details of the life and the lineage of Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they were both descendants of Aaron, Israel's first high priest. Now two of the most highly honored family lines in the story of scripture are the family line of Aaron and the family line of David. To Aaron's family tree, which is where Zechariah and Elizabeth come from that we just learned, God had given the covenant of the priesthood. To David's family tree, where Jesus gets his earthly lineage from, he had given the covenant of royalty. What, one of the things that Luke's detailed account of the birth of John and then Jesus points out to us is that there are these two things at play. That God is sending us a savior who is both the shepherd of our souls and the king of our hearts and lives. He's the true and better high priest and the true and better king. For John to come and fulfill this Isaiah 40 prophecy, which I think we have, that says a voice calls in the wilderness (laughs) to prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. When John came, he came to fulfill this prophecy. It was establishing it was it was certainly heralding Jesus' Jesus's coming, but it was also establishing his authority as priest as well as king. When John says later in his ministry that a greater prophet comes after him, he has the priestly authority to say, there's somebody greater coming after me. On top of all of this, at this point in Israel's history, both the houses of Aaron and David had long kind of fallen from honor in Israel. And so the gospel comes and places honor back on both of these family trees in this moment of history and the reason I say that is just to say this the redeeming work of Jesus is already at play and he hasn't even arrived yet so let's pick back up with the story in verse 8 now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense incense we're talking about Zechariah here And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Again, details, like, moment by moment, Luke is like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and this this happened, and those of you who are, like, skimmers and paraphrasers and bullet point people are like, get to the point already. But everything that he includes has so much purpose. So what he's talking about here, and the reason he includes it is that Each of the, there were 24 divisions of the priesthood that David had actually divided up during his time as king. And we know from verse 5 that Zechariah is from the division of Abijah. Each, Each division would serve in the temple for one week, twice a year, and at major festivals. Now, we're not going to do a deep dive into the Jewish calendar today, but I want to tell you this. If One reason that Luke mentions the specific division that Zechariah comes from is because you could look at a a Jewish calendar and you could know if you counted the 24 uh, divisions of the priesthood, and I I think that his was the eighth one, you would have been able to to know if you knew the Jewish calendar exactly what time of year this was. You would have known when he was serving. You would have known when John was conceived, and you would have been able to follow the story in a really accurate timeline from then on. you would have been able to pinpoint all of these little bitty details. And I, and I tell you this to point out this one thing. Other than Luke wanting to give the detail account count like we said before, he he's cares that we understand as his audience that God was writing every single detail intentionally. And I think the bigger picture thing we can catch here is that our God is interested in the details, of these stories, he's interested in the details of our stories. Luke, what Luke's doing is he's he's establishing God's authority as the better story writer, to remind us that his timing and his process is so much better than ours. His ways are higher, and with that in mind, if you go back to the story that what was going on right now is Zechariah. They, although they would serve multiple times in the year in the temple, there was only one time in a priest's lifetime that. They would be chosen by lot to serve during the hour of incense, to go into the temple and be the the priest who offered the incense. And Zechariah's only turn has come. And while he's doing that at the hour of incense, the people, it says at the end of this little chunk that we just read, that the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. It was customary for them to gather in the courtyard, and they would pray individually as the priest was inside praying for them corporately. And when he was done, he would come out and he would give them a blessing. So Zechariah enters the temple to do this once-in-a-lifetime duty of offering the incense at the hour of incense. He's going to go in, he's going to pray corporately for the, the nation of Israel. And this is what happens next. In verse 11, "...and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now remember the responsibility of the priest on duty was to offer incense and pray for the nation of Israel. His purpose was to offer a corporate prayer yet this angel shows up and delivers the answer to a deeply personal heart cry. Remember it says before Zechariah and Elizabeth they don't have a child. Elizabeth is barren and they're both advanced in age. This is not it's it had been a very long life of longing and disappointment and ache for a son. Yet as Zechariah is praying for the nation of Israel, he receives this, this personal prayer request response. And what's interesting is that Zechariah's intercession as priest that day would have undoubtedly included a prayer for a Messiah. He for sure would have, as he offered up the incense to pray for the nation of Israel, he for sure would have prayed, God, send us the Savior that you promised. And I just can't help but think that God knew all along that it would happen this way. He knew that this one descendant of Aaron, all these years later, would stand in the temple on this one day in his whole life. And that this would be the moment that everything began to change for God's people. And remember it said in verse 6 that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous before God. There was something about the way they had lived a long life of obedience in the same direction that landed him in this place. We can't miss that part of this story tonight. The creator of the universe is, he's looking down and he's ready to answer a prayer that's hundreds of years old that so many people have prayed for a Messiah. And I love the way one of my favorite teachers wrote it about this particular part of the story. He, He chose a man who would pray an old prayer with a fresh heart. Maybe Zechariah snuck in his own request for a son in that moment. I don't know. I think maybe if I was in my once-in-a-lifetime moment of offering up the incense, I might sneak in a few personal ones myself. We will never know that part of the story. But most certainly, he prayed the prayer for a Savior with a deep knowing of what longing for something or someone feels like. It's highly likely Zechariah petitioned for a Messiah that day with the passion of a man who knew barrenness of a man who who knew lack and longing for the blessing of God over a broken people. He knew that in such a deeply personal way. And God shows up like only God can. And he says, I haven't missed a single one. I haven't missed a single petition, not from my people for a savior and not from you for a son. So Zechariah, who is standing in this moment, this old man who had lived a long life of obedience in the same direction. He doesn't just see his promise, and he doesn't just see Israel's promise. He sees them both, and actually his promise plays a significant role in the delivery of Israel's promise. It was all a part of the bigger story God was writing all along. Some of us need to remember this tonight in our weary places of longing and unanswered prayers, that there's more to the story. So how does Zechariah respond? We're going to pick back up in verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. I want you to remember... We're going to talk real quick about Zechariah and, and Gabriel's interaction right now. But remember how that section ends that he walks out and he's silent and he doesn't speak to anyone. And when his time of service is ended, he goes home. We're going to come back to that later. But something about this whole interaction with, with Zechariah and the angel Gabriel sort of makes me laugh a little bit. Gabriel shows up and he's, he's got this grand announcement and prophecy to Zechariah about his son and all Zechariah can say is how do I know that seems a little impossible and it's almost like Gabriel's like a little irritated by that his the first words out of his mouth are I'm Gabriel I stand in the presence of God it's sort of like he's he, what he's implying is you must not know about me but you're going to learn today And Those are the last words out of Zechariah's mouth for a while. Now don't worry, he isn't mute forever. It says in what we just read that Gabriel, and I almost wonder if he was like a little sassy in the way he said this too. Like, you're not going to be able to talk until these things are fulfilled, which by the way, they will be. (laughs) He isn't mute forever. His son still comes. But Zechariah doesn't have a whole lot to say for, I imagine, about nine months or so. And maybe we don't go mute, but don't we all bear the signs of our doubt sometimes? I know I do. I have in some of my deepest places of longing, and I have in some of the smallest places in my day to day. And just this morning, we, we uh, I didn't say this earlier, if you're new here, I'm married to Nolan, our worship pastor, who was just right here, and we have two little kids, and This morning was just one of those days. I mean, our kids were up at some ungodly hour long before the sun. We, our whole family, like somebody in our house has been sick, I think, for the last month and a half. It's just been, it's been flu season, you guys know. So this morning, we're all kind of dragging. We've been up since yesterday. And Nolan, being so sweet, looks at me and says, You have to speak tonight. Why don't I take the kids out for a little bit? And you can just kind of have some time to yourself. So I think it's like 6.30 at this point. (laughs) 6.30 and we're already at our wit's end. Nolan packs up the kids. He walks out the door. I climb back into bed. And about 20 minutes later, Nolan's calling me. And I was like, that's kind of unusual. Um, So I answer the phone. And I can hear both of our kids screaming in the background. And he's like, the hood of the car is smoking. I'm up on Capitol Hill. Can you come quickly? I think the kids are getting cold. (laughs) So I throw on my slippers, not even my shoes, and a jacket. I am on my way up the hill. We just live at the bottom of Capitol Hill in Marmalade, so it wasn't that far. But I get, I'm on my way up. Nolan calls, and he's like, I think I can actually get the card. I still don't Did you just like Flintstone at home? I'm not really sure how you got there. Meanwhile, I text Kate, like, Mayday, please pray. My car's broken down. My kids are broken down. Our pet's heads are falling off. I want to make it to eight o'clock this morning before the sky starts falling. So they get home. I have now I now have both of our kids that are melting down. Nolan's outside looking under the hood, praying for a divine revelation about cars, and we. I'm just like. I'm having one of those moments where everything is building up and I can feel the meltdown about to just explode. Ezra's screaming. He's five months old. Ellie's mad that Nolan went outside without her, so she's upset too. So I have both of them in the rocking chair. (laughs) Everyone's yelling in my ear. And it was honestly like God just sort of whispered in my ear in a loving but sort of corrective way. How are you going to respond right now? Will you respond in faith or will you wear the signs of your doubt today? And God was going to get us through this day no matter what. I was probably going to stand here and say the same things no matter what. But what I felt like God was saying in that moment was, you know, honestly, kind of a, you've been studying this story the last few weeks. Are you going to do what? You're learning or are you not? Because you can wear the signs of your doubt today and it's probably going to look like stress and anxiety and fear and being short-tempered with your kids or your husband or you can sit here holding two two of the best promises fulfilled of your life and you can remember who I am in this moment. And God will be God, guys, just like Gabriel looks at Zachariah and says, by the way, it's going to happen but your road there is going to look a little different than it could have. So Zechariah is quiet for a while. Elizabeth is pregnant. Let's see what happens when John is born. We're going to skip down to verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah. They would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, anyone in this room who's ever had a kid is cringing at the thought that your friends and family members show up after you've had a baby. You tell them what the name is and they all go, ooh. And they look at your spouse and they're like, are you sure about that? But beyond that taboo interaction that's happening here, there's actually something bigger. It might seem to us a little weird that an audience came to be there for the circumcision, but for the Jewish people, this, was a, a, event was, this event was representative of God's covenant with Abraham and his people. It was a significant moment of the life of a son born into a Jewish family that on the eighth day, they would remember what God did for them. It was a mark of a people being set apart by God. So what happens next is actually really significant that it would happen On this exact day, picking up in verse 63, as he asked, and he asked, he being Zachariah, who still can't talk, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And if I'm Elizabeth in this moment, I'm going, I told you. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. See, here on the eighth day of John's life, the day he's to be circumcised, as they remember God's covenant to his people, the friends and family members of Zechariah and Elizabeth are all of a sudden catching on to what's going on. And they're looking around going, something miraculous is happening. What they don't realize is here on the eighth day of John's life, as they remember God's covenant with his people, God's making his covenant with his people. See, John isn't the Messiah. Jesus is. John came as a sign. He came as a forerunner. From the very beginning of his life, he's doing just that. He's opening the hearts of the people to watch and wait for their Savior. Friends, there's something for us here. I don't know what kind of barrenness or impossibility or ache or longing or loss you carry into the holiday season. But can I just say prophetically to you tonight, there is a voice calling out in your wilderness saying, prepare the way. He's coming. Barrenness doesn't have the last word. This has been God's MO for like a long time. This started with Sarah and Abraham and the birth of Isaac. And there were a lot of others after that. With key roles in the story, you should do a study on this sometime if you're curious. It's fascinating. God loves to look at impossibility and say, I'm the God of the impossible. He's been proving himself faithful in the face of impossibility forever, and he's still doing that. And remember, it's not our story to write, and if I may, I'd like to point out, based on everything that we've just studied tonight, that he's proved himself to be a better story writer than we are. But sometimes to leave no stone unturned and to weave all the details together in such a thoughtful and loving and caring way as God does, it ends up being a little bit longer of a story than any of us would have preferred. We don't really like long stories. We don't even like long Instagram stories. You know you do this. You see ten little segments on somebody's story and you're like, skip, I have been thinking about this a lot this week because Nolan and I are Madam Secretary fans. And if you haven't watched the finale, I will not spoil it, I promise. But there's basically at the end of season five, they weren't sure if they would renew it or not. And they ended up renewing it for like a shortened final season. Well, I have been unwell this week because the season was not long enough to wrap up the details like I wanted them to. And there really is something to that. I know I referred to myself as the house storyteller earlier, and I have a degree in journalism, and I care about these sorts of things, but there is actual truth to allowing God the time to finish the story. And I don't particularly like that when it comes to my own story. I would have loved for them to drag out Madam Secretary, but I would like mine for, to like hurry along a little bit. I learned this in a really personal way on our own journey to start a family. We spent several years trying miscarriage, failed adoption, you name it. There was disappointment that we probably experienced along the way. And I would have loved to meet our little girl, Ellie Joy, about four Christmases sooner than I did. (laughs) But when she was born on December 1st, 2016, on the first day of Advent, I held in a very real way for the first time the truth that allowing God to finish his story is worth sticking around for. And Zechariah and Elizabeth knew that. We know from verse 6 that we read at the very beginning of this that God says that they were righteous before him. And right after that, that they had lived a long life with no promise fulfilled. Yet, Zechariah continues to show up in obedience to the next thing that God calls him to, which is this hour of incense in the temple, and something miraculous happens. And it's not just his promise. It is the promise of the people of God. Now, God will be God no matter what, but where would Zechariah's story have ended up if he hadn't chosen the long road of obedience that he did? God is the best story writer, and this story actually gets better. We're going to finish it. In verse 67, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, he's speaking to John now, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This prophecy spoken by Zechariah is referred to by theologians as the Benedictus, it was a benediction customarily spoken over the people by the priest performing the temple service. Remember, earlier in the story, he was serving in the temple. He has this encounter with the angel. Doubt silences him. He walks out. He tries to sign to the people (laughs) unsuccessfully, and when his time of service is ended, he goes home. He never spoke the blessing over the people that was supposed to be spoken when he came out of the temple that day. In a sense, there was some unfinished business from Zechariah's last appointment from God. And I'm not sure that this was even intentional on his part to, to speak a benediction nine months later from the day he was unable to. Uh, I, I just I wonder if he was so moved, moved by the faithfulness of his God that he couldn't help it. He was overcome. By the Holy Spirit, he was bursting with gratitude and blessing and praise. He may have been silenced that day when he came out of the temple, unable to finish his priestly duties, but again, God finishes what he starts. And nine months later, after his faith becomes sight, Zachariah realizes that everything was true, that, that he was the only eyewitness to 400 years of silence ending, when heaven burst through the sound barrier of eternity into earth and echoed that Israel was going to be receiving their rescuer in just a few months. He was the only one there and he didn't know. It's all coming full circle for him in this in this moment that his savior really was on the way and that his family really would play a key role in the story. And he speaks what may be one of the most significant benedictions any priest ever did. That it's time that God's people, their longing and their lack and their ache and their disappointment was ending. That their rescuer was on his way. Friends, there's always more to the story. It feels fitting tonight that we would open our hearts and allow the way to be prepared for us to receive our coming king and our barrenness and our ache and our longing and our loss that that we would posture our hearts tonight and say God I believe you you already came you love to show up in the face of impossibility we need a perspective shift in the face of our impossibility will we be a people who stand in these spaces and we say there's more to the story I might be barren, but my God is a God of impossibility. I might need healing, but my God is a healer. I might not know what to do with this relationship that feels irreconcilable, but my God is a reconciler. It might be hard for me to keep walking down this desolate road I've been on, but there is a voice in the wilderness calling me, beckoning me to keep going. Prepare the way. Your God is coming. There's more to the story. Ben, why don't you go ahead and head back up here as we wrap this up. There's more to the story. If you're standing in here, sitting in here, only a few of you are standing at this point. You're sitting in here tonight and and you're thinking, um, I didn't even know I could be a part of that story. Can I just invite you tonight into the presence of Jesus and into a life of walking with him? This is the only answer to our ache and our disappointment and our longing and our loss. And he's available. He's always available. What we remember in this season is way more than there's more to all of our stories that God's writing, which is true. There's more to the story that's already been written. He already paid a price. He already came. So if that's you tonight, I just want to invite you. Why don't everybody go ahead and stand up as we enter into ministry time. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I need you. I'm dead in my sin, and I know that you are the way to life. Thank you for coming. Thank you for for being who you say you are. God, thank you for making good on your promises. I receive it. Jesus, I receive you, and I invite you into my life. Come and be Lord. Come and be high priest and king. I love you, and I need you. Amen.